Heavenly Father, as we come to look at the words that uh, your brother spoke to those disciples all those years ago, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through them to each one of us. Challenge us anew, we pray this morning. Amen. Well, I don't know how you feel about MOT examinations of cars. Up to about five years ago, I always drove cars that uh, needed an MOT every year, and it was with some trepidation that uh, I awaited that dreaded day because I knew that uh, there would be a cost involved to get it through the MOT certificate. That was the negative side. The positive side is that in the last decade or so, we have better cars being driven around. You've only got to go to a country that doesn't have that sort of uh, regular testing to see the nature of some of the cars that are being driven around. I think of my, uh, some of my visits to Africa, for instance. It's a cost, isn't it? It's a negative, we fear it, but there's a benefit as well. And this morning, I believe, as we look at this passage of Scripture, it's a bit like an MOT certificate, because it asks the question of people, people that claim to have faith in Jesus, do they have true faith? And what does that true faith actually look like? Now, if you haven't been present with us in the last two Sundays, let me just state as an introduction the theme of James' epistle. It's written to dispersed Jewish Christians. It's uh, written to people who have accepted the gospel, they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and James writes that they should demonstrate the reality of their faith in day-to-day lives. And so last week, Alan brought to us chapter 1, verse 18, which says, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. God chose to make us a new creation, and that creation should not be constantly subject to doubts and fears that Satan tries to inflict upon us. But God's disciples should do the word, the teachings of Christ. And that's what we're building upon this morning. We're called not to just talk the talk, but to walk the walk. Of course, we need to know the knowledge about the Word. James, though, exhorts us not to stop there. Now, many of us, if you, it's a relatively short epistle, and I would encourage you to read it through, perhaps at one sitting. James presents us with 60 obligations in only 108 verses. He focuses on the truth of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount and to act upon what he taught. He puts to rest the idea that one can become a Christian and yet continue to live in sin, exhibiting no fruit of righteousness. Such a faith, James declares, is shared by demons who believe and tremble. Chapter 2, verse 19. So let's then return to our passage this morning. We're on page 1214 if you'd like to follow as we go through it. Now, I'd like to suggest to you that James wants the best for the believers. 
Yes, he questions the faith of his brothers and sisters, but note the way he actually does it. In chapter 1, verse 16, he says this, My dear brothers, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Chapter 2, verse 5, Listen, my dear brothers. So he addresses these brothers and sisters with warmth, a caring attitude. He's not castigating and judging the people. Rather, in love, he is questioning and advising them concerning their spiritual condition. He's already spoken of this in chapter 1, verse 23, where he said, Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And so he asks these brothers and sisters in Christ, he says to them, what good is it if you have faith in theory, you know the theology, you agree with it, but have no actions? Surely, as we look at the church down throughout the ages, one of the great tragedies is that we find people who profess to Christ, they're baptised, they're confirmed, they become members of the church, but they don't follow or live for Christ. They're not pure people. They're not people who are reaching out to the lost and needy of the world. And so we might well with James question, are they saved? Do they have a genuine faith? While reading this passage, some people have stated that James is actually disagreeing with Paul's theology, as stated in Romans 3 and Ephesians 2 verse 8, which says, we are only saved and justified by faith and not by works. Well, I want to say to you this morning, this is a misunderstanding, because what Paul is saying is that we are saved by confessing our sins, accepting the death of Jesus for our sins. We can only become part of God's kingdom when we accept Christ's sacrifice for us, and there's nothing that we can do to earn salvation by works. That's what Paul is saying. But what James is saying is a bit like the chicken and the egg, because James is saying that having accepted Jesus' sacrifice for us, having accepted the cross for us, having faith in this sacrifice for us, having invited Jesus into our lives as king, this will lead us to do the works of the Father as spoken by Jesus. If you want to look at what Jesus says, look at Matthew 5 and Luke 6, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, Jesus says this, In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Of course, we can't do this in our own ability and power. Only the power that comes from the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives to change us and make us more like Christ. And that, of course, is why we invite the Holy Spirit into our lives. Because he won't come in and overpower us against our own will. Now we can invite him in, surrendering to Jesus. So the important question for us then is, what is the difference between real faith and false faith, according to James? Well, have a look at verse 15 and 16. 
because it's shown by James' statement concerning how the person who holds this type of faith, this false faith, relates to both man and to God. He says this, a man who says he has faith, and I've highlighted the word says, doesn't mean he necessarily has it. And this is seen in his action towards his brothers and sisters who, in faith who are in need. He says that they comfort in word. They say, well, I'm sure you will be all right in the future. God bless you. But they're sent away unfed and uncared for. And we read that James says, if this is their action, this results in faith being seen as dead. But not only is this faith spurious towards mankind, it's also ineffectual towards God. Because this type of faith gives no peace with God. In fact, if you ask people, do they believe in God? Many will say they do. They have faith in God without having works. Because James says in verse 18 and 19, this is what the demons also have. They certainly believe in God. They believe that God exists. They know who Jesus is. And they live in terror. If you want to look an account of that, see Mark 1, verse 24, where Jesus meets that man who is consumed by the demon. And the demon recognises Jesus and says, I know who you are. You are the Son of God. To illustrate this then, what does James do? He says, this type of faith is barren. It doesn't have any true works. And he shows then us two examples of people who are completely opposite to this. Abraham and Rahab. Jewish people that they would have known about. Two very different examples to show the effects of what true faith looks like. It's a contrasting example, isn't it? One is a male and a Jew and of high social standing within his community. The other is a female, a Gentile, and of a very low social standing. She's a prostitute. She sells her body for sex. But both of these people are celebrated for their faith. Again, if you want to look at this, read Romans 4, verses 1 to 4, or Hebrews 11. But it's certainly clear that for James, these people represent what true faith looks like. So, what does, why does James do it? Well, he does this, I think, to link in the faith of the Old Testament to the faith in the New, because it's all part of God's plan for salvation and the world. So let's have a look at these two examples in a bit more detail. Firstly, Abraham, a great leader of God's people, a righteous man, verse 21. You'll remember the story of how Abraham didn't have a son, and yet God had promised him that he would be father of a massive nation. Well, it seemed, how could that possibly happen? Abraham was old, his wife was way beyond childbearing age, and yet we read that God gave him a son, Isaac, through whom he would be blessed. And this son Abraham loved. He was the apple of his eye. And then we read in Genesis 22 how God called him to go and sacrifice, make a sacrifice to God. 
But instead of using a ram or using an animal, he was to use his son for the sacrifice. And we read in Genesis 22 that Abraham was obedient. But at the very last moment, God saved Isaac and provided the ram for the for this sacrifice. Now, of course, there's a lot of imagery in the story. But the point is this, that Abraham was prepared to act upon God's instructions even when they went right to the heart of what was most precious to him. He was prepared to give all back to God. He was prepared to act upon his faith. Now, I'd suggest to you that this would have been a mighty strong picture to these Jewish Christians, this great man of faith. But what about the second example, the lady? Well, she's the complete opposite, isn't she? She didn't have a relationship with God like Abraham did. But here we have a woman who's a prostitute in a foreign city. She's a Canaanite Gentile woman, a lowest of the low, even within her own society. But we see here that even the lowest person who claims to believe in God must do good works. Her actions of saving the spies from certain death are deemed to be righteous and her family and herself are saved as a result. Now this prostitute, this woman, had heard about God's deeds of saving his people as they came out of Egypt and she believed in them in God's actions in her heart. But that belief wasn't enough to save her, because it may well have been that other people in Jericho believed the same things. But Rahab acted on what she believed by protecting the Hebrew spies. And because her faith translated into action, she was delivered. In Jewish eyes, she was considered the mother of all who turned to Judaism from paganism the first example of a convert. And the passage concludes, as the body without the spirit isn't dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And Rahab acted with faith. So it's a really serious subject that James writes about. I said at the beginning, it would be a challenging subject for us. The Christian followers that he is writing to, he's saying they will have dead lives if their faith in Jesus doesn't lead to practical actions. Challenging, isn't it? Challenging to us this morning by this message. Is our faith true or false? Now, as a church, I believe we're pretty good, aren't we, at teaching whether that be to the children who have just gone out, whether that be to young people, small groups, within weekly services. We're good at running courses. I've been here 25 years, and we've run many different courses to enable us to understand the theology of salvation. We are called to have faith in Jesus. But do we recognise the possibility of false faith? Faith that doesn't lead to practical actions. But you say to me, Nigel, we have dedicated ourselves to evangelism of the parish. We have spoken many words with great faith. But do we seriously take the teaching of James and try to follow and do the teaching of Jesus found in the Sermon on the Mount? 
Do we love our brothers and sisters so much that we want to serve them in the name of Jesus? Because that's what Jesus wants us to do. Do we aspire to be like like Abraham? Do we prepare to give up what is the most precious for us, for God? Well, Abraham did. And so we see these passages, if we could have the, uh, the PowerPoint, please. These three passages that seem to me to sum up this whole subject within this section of James this morning. You see, Abraham's faith and his actions were working together. His faith was made complete by what he did. Actions speak louder than words. Note that James is speaking in verse 15 towards their brothers and sisters. Real faith leads us to care for others within the community of believers. Of course, we may well say, well, Nigel, we don't see our brothers and sisters today without clothes and food, as James did. We have a state social system that will ensure that none are destitute. But surely, we have no excuses today because we live in an age when communications are such that we do see brothers and sisters in Christ who are poor, who are destitute, who are in danger of their lives. Three examples for you. What about what's happening in Syria, Iraq and Egypt? Just to name three examples. We've exa- we have organisations set up to help these people. The Barnabas Fund, Open Doors, Tear Fund, again, just to name three examples. And three of these types of groups, we can offer both practical help. We know that young people, for instance, go out with Tear Fund to help. We can help in monetary terms, as we've been hearing this morning, through our giving. We can help through supporting through political initiatives, bringing pressure upon governments. We can help through our prayers. And within our local communities that we live in, actions speak louder than words. As we go out onto the Jenny Lind, our actions speak louder often than what comes out of our mouths. They go hand in hand with showing the love of Christ. Remember, Jesus' instructions, we are to love others as he loves us. Of course, James doesn't specify how much help we should give. We can individually assess our own faith by what practical actions we are taking to help those who are less fortunate than us. So I wondered as I started this morning, how is our MOT of faith? I challenge you, take time to consider your own faith. Perhaps pray with others. Perhaps pray at the end of the service. Consider the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. And earlier in the week, I came upon this as a quote which I thought was uh, quite apt. It's not from the Bible but it's from Mother Teresa. She says this of practical actions. If I can find the sheet. Here we go. She says this. uh, People are often unreasonable and self-centred. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are honest, people may cheat you. Be honest anyway. 
If you find happiness, people may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today may be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have and it may never be enough. Give your best anyway. For you see, in the end, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. Amen.